Hey there guys, sorry to interrupt the episode, but I just wanted to tell you that I got my real estate license in the state of Rhode Island. So if you need to buy, sell, or need help renting a property in the state of Rhode Island, feel free to reach out. Contact me at maxwellwillett at kw.com or call me at 401-487-4477 and I'd be more than happy to help you. Thanks guys and enjoy the rest of the episode. Knowledge is Power is where you come to hear people's life experiences to learn from. So, without further ado, let's roll the intro. Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I have a dream. We'll one day live in a nation. Hello and welcome back to the Knowledge is Power podcast. This is your host, Max Willett, and I got another great guest on today. So if you could go ahead and introduce yourself, that would be great. Sure. I'm Christine West. I'm an architect and I'm a principal at Kite Architects. Very cool. Yeah. So I've always been, uh, not always, but throughout high school, I was kind of fascinated with architecture. Mm -hmm. Uh, I took drafting in high school. I went to down here in the sticks in Cherahoe. Um, <laughs> um, and we have a we had a uh, engineering drafting and design class. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the first house I designed was like open floor plan. We used a program called Revit. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and to be pretty young. Yeah. <laughs> Revit wasn't invented until I was out of college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm 21. Um, and and I'm and that's like the only program we use for architecture, but. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed at what architects are able to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's enough about my my history with architecture. So let's hear your life story and how you got up to this point of your life. Okay, life story in 30 seconds. Go. It could be No, it can be as long as you want it to be. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, um, I grew up in upstate New York, Corning, New York specifically. It's an interesting town. It's the headquarters of Corning Incorporated, which has historically been an innovator. They've invented fiber optics, Gorilla Glass on your phone, Um unnamed you know amount of invention so a lot of smart people in that town and uh, my father got a job as the director of the library system there so we moved there when I was four Um, my mom was uh, started out as an industrial designer at Syracuse University that's where they met at Syracuse Um, but she eventually became both a kitchen designer and a landscape painter she was very proud of the painting she was very accomplished Um, so I had a a really great uh, kind of grounding in appreciation for both the arts, uh, literature, but also in a town full of wicked smart people, as they say in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so as I went through school, I was pretty good at school. I liked math. I liked science. I also liked reading a lot. Um, Kind of had my pick of, of what direction I wanted to pursue. Um, given that it was pretty much a high-tech town, uh, everybody's parents, it seemed, were working in, in the um, research and development lab doing <laughs> inventing all mm-hmm. those things. And so I, I sort of thought that scientist was the obvious path. And I kind of held on to that even through junior year, even as I really was exploring art, you know, thanks to my mother and the kind of exposure to um, painting and drawing lessons. I absolutely loved creating art, but I didn't really want to become a fine artist. Mm. So it didn't occur to me that architecture was the path to really combine that love of more technical nature 
and the kind of math and science approach that architecture embodies with the creative aspect, the visual thinking. Um, and then what knit it together for me was a, um, a summer program at Carnegie Mellon University where I ended up at undergraduate school where I really saw that it was more than drafting. It was more than making stare details. It mm -hmm. was really about creating spaces for people. And that was the hook <laughs> that, that kind of got me into it. Um, so, yeah, I would love to say that, oh, there was a mentor that pushed me. My art teacher, who I loved, actually told me, don't be an architect. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you'll hate it. And yeah. Like, okay, I guess I'll be an architect. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, fascinating. It, it's good to hear that. Um, so you come from an an artist background sort of and mm -hmm. it's funny i just had i just interviewed somebody who works for industrial light and magic yesterday oh, wow. <laughs> for the podcast which was which was really cool yeah. and he never really knew that he wanted to be a vfx artist mm -hmm. um and he's sort of comes at it from like a, a, a technical mm -hmm. sort of viewpoint of the of the art because mm -hmm. it really is it's an art yeah. um and then to hear you sort of come at architecture from the artist standpoint and then apply it to architecture is really interesting. And I want to get into that. Mm -hmm. So I guess one of my first questions for you, uh, well, why don't you sort of explain uh, Kite Architects? Thanks, yeah. We'll, we'll do that first okay. and, and sort of the business and what you guys specialize in if you specialize in anything. Yeah, sounds great. So um, our firm is actually going to be celebrating its 50th anniversary um, next year. Uh, so congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I was not a member of the firm that would have put me in kindergarten, Yeah, <laughs> but it was founded in 1974 by Bill Kite, very accomplished and talented architect and his wife, Lynna Kite. Uh, they ran the firm for, for many, many years. Um, I came to Providence in about 2003, uh, mm -hmm. to join the firm and my current partner, Albert Garcia also had joined the firm the year earlier. So as Bill and Lena were getting kind of having their uh, sights on the horizon to retire, um, they asked Albert and I to join as, as owners. And when they eventually retired in 2013, Albert and I became the two sole, on sole owners. So we've got about 11 people and uh, a really nice portfolio of work. And Albert and I have really spent a lot of time being intentional about the kind of clients and projects we take on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we love a challenge. You know, we really don't see the technical and design and aesthetic sides and the craft of architecture as being separate. For us, that meaning is really rooted in the technicality and an excellent level of craft, but it also has to have meaning and it has to be supportive of us as humans. And I have a lot to say about human-centered design <laughs> and such. Okay. Um, but most of our work, uh, we've got a nice balance between things like educational environments for universities, private schools and such. Uh, we do, um, we're doing more work with corporations in terms of a post-COVID workplace. What does that even look like? <laughs> we do. Yeah. We work with a lot of nonprofits who are trying to figure out affordable housing and how to provide job opportunities to people who may not have had opportunities. And then finally, we do a smattering of, of occasionally um, custom residential for very special clients. <laughs> okay. Oh, so you guys specialize on, on I guess, really more the industrial side like I would call it commercial, commercial. and organizational. You okay. Know, institutional is kind of a catch-all that would include a university as well as a nonprofit. Are there any structures in Rhode Island that mm -hmm. you can point out that, that you designed? Uh, wow. Yeah. Where do I start? Well, we just finished the Stonewall House in, and uh, on Brown University's campus. It's on Benevolent Street. It is the country's 
largest freestanding center for students who are identify as LGBTQ mm-hmm. or questioning as community. So we crafted that out of a, combining a historic house that was built in 1820 uh, or thereabouts and creating an addition that provided accessibility, kind of gutting a lot of the interior to make some meeting spaces and um, community um, activity zones. Um, so that, that was a, a real point of pride. Um, one of the other projects that we're um, continue to work with, um, Crossroads Rhode Island, when they moved um, across the 95 from downtown onto Broad Street, something that everybody passes through if they're driving through Providence. So we did an interior renovation of the lower floors um, back in the early 2000s, and we're actually working with them now on some really significant projects to uh, help them achieve the goal of ending homelessness in Rhode mm. Island. So so that's that's up and coming. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a big issue that's going on right now, especially with everything that was going on at the oh State gosh. House not too long ago i'm oh not sure goodness. if that's still going on but <laughs> it's, it's always going on yeah <laughs> we haven't fixed it yet and then some of the other examples that people might know um the dean hotel was a point of pride i think that really kind of changed a lot of people's image of downtown providence and really mm-hmm. catalyzed a lot of the creative spirit of providence um we just wrapped up the Bodhi spa uh, up on broadway in providence Re- really great people it's kind of a, a water journey <laughs> kind of environment which was mm-hmm. terrific and uh you know a lot of things (laughs) along the way so uh cool um so i think we should get a little technical in the process so i'm really curious to hear all right so i am somebody that works at brown university and say hey i need this building to be upgraded Mm -hmm. uh to be more modern Mm -hmm. how does that process start and and can you walk us through that whole process of, of working with the customer yeah yeah great question so I think a lot of people, if you ask them what architects do, uh, sometimes they'll say design buildings, sure, of course. Um, some will say, well, they make blueprints. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, they're digital. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, what I like to say in response to that is like, that's like saying what a doctor does is write prescriptions. And if you think about that, of course, they're writing prescriptions, but that's at the end of a long process that starts by asking the patient a lot of questions, by looking, listening, thumping on your chest, taking tests, Mm -hmm. analyzing, thinking, consulting research, coming up with a a variety of different ideas on what could be causing this and then what the, the course of treatment should be. At the end of the day, writing a prescription for something may be one of those tools that it helps that patient. Could be physical therapy, could be change in diet, um, could be a combining factor. And architecture is just as com- complex. So we act like that physician in asking questions at the start. So say you come to me. Um, uh, we generally will lead a team of not only architects, but engineers, like mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, plumbing. Um, we start by just assessing and analyzing what you've got. You know, so that's measuring the building, but also looking at the systems. And then we kind of take our our special kind of look at it and saying, what are the opportunities? Mm -hmm. And to do to understand what the opportunities are, we have to understand where you want to go with the building. So um, let's take the the example of the Deaton Hotel, right? They wanted to create an affordable but very creative uh, place that reflected the spirit of Providence but was um, affordable enough so that it wasn't um, a barrier of entry for the price because a lot of artists and creatives and people generally, you know, can't afford $500 a night for a hotel. Like the goal was to make a a room that was $150 a night and below. Puts tremendous pressure on the um, cost because you can spend your way to create design, certainly. Mm -hmm. 
So what we did uh, with that project specifically, you know, listening to that goals and thinking, okay, well, well how does that then drive our approach to, say, the rooms? How are we going to make the guest room something that's a great experience but not spend a fortune dealing with it? How are we going to open up the ground floor and create spaces that you can rent to a coffee shop and a restaurant and a karaoke bar and help support the hotel's finances so that they can continue to keep their room rates low? So we look at all those opportunities. And um, if you think about kind of a spiral, some people compare design thinking to a circle. Mm-hmm. But if you can envision a spiral that starts with um, the discovery phase, what I've been talking about in terms of, of looking at what have you got to work with. Sometimes it's just an empty field, <laughs> but um, a field comes with roads and neighbors and utilities. Um, next starts to be the analysis part where we start to say, well, what are the patterns? What are the needs that are inherent in what you're trying to do? How do they match up with what the site or the building can offer? And then the next step in that cycle is to propose and you say, okay, well, I propose like empty out the ground floor. We're going to knock down these walls. We're going to place all the windows. We're going to put solar panels on the roof. Then you test, and that iterative part is what the, the secret sauce to all design professions is, where you not you don't just stop at that one circle. You say, well, is that really going to work? Is the shape of the roof and the orientation of the roof right for solar panels? Can we remove that wall, or is it, in fact, structural? <laughs> and then you start it all over. You f- figure out what you don't know. You, you look at for patterns. You look for opportunities. You propose something, and then you analyze. And you keep closing down on that spiral until you finally get to these design solutions and, at the end of the day, finished project. So hmm. that's kind of how I would describe the okay. process. Yeah, great. Um, can you explain like the biggest difference between, like you said, you're starting off with a structure like the mm-hmm. Dean Hotel uh-huh. or when you're starting with something from the ground up? Yeah, yeah. So what's the biggest difference between those two processes? There's, um, well, I think there's a little more flexibility in new construction to yep. dictate the, the massing, let's call it, and the mm-hmm. shape of the building. A lot of times, but not always, with an existing building, um, you know, you have this kind of exterior face. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you're still looking at probably a very, very good overlap. Um, there's always design constraints, whether they're internal from the client or, or financial or system-wise, or whether it's a constraint that's presented by what's there. Um, so our process is very similar with both. Um, I think just being in an established city like Providence, even with new construction, like our, our project um, for Summer Street that's going to hopefully get uh, underway this spring, um, you know, there are regulations like zoning that are going to dictate a lot of what that massing and appearance are, are going to be. Um, I think for that project, we're, we're really excited because we're exploring some ways to be very expressive with the outside in a way that fits in with the city but is also very innovative. Um, and so anybody curious to see what that looks like can check out our website at, at www.kitearchitects.com. Um, so it's, it's interesting. The existing buildings, I was never a preservation architect to begin mm. with, but working in the Northeast, you pretty much have to become a preservation expert because yeah. there's so much opportunity and so many projects are, are reusing a building, whether it's just really old or historic or even yeah. you know from the 50s or 60s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned regulations. Mm-hmm. What is the most annoying regulation <laughs> that you have had to design around or with that you've encountered in your career? <laughs> That's a great question. Boy, I mean, if a, ru- if a rule is that annoying, we tend to try to get around it. Yeah. And not have to follow it. Um, 
I think generally, I mean, I'm, I'm on the side of, of regulation in a lot of cases. So full mm. disclosure, I was chair of the Providence City Plan Commission for about 10 years, enforcing a lot of the planning and zoning regulations. I was a member of the state building board of, of um, our architects, like reviewing, um, and I still am on the Providence Building Board, reviewing okay. code exemptions and Very such. Very cool. You know, so I, I think that um, the, there's a rooting in safety. Yeah, absolutely. That, that the um, codes embody, which, you know, you if you're going to provide something else make sure it's safe and then in terms of the zoning and planning regulations there's an element of consensus and community consensus and there's mm. a lot of fairly um, robust processes around uh, community participation doesn't mean to say every project is popular there's always, yeah. always a, a protest but in theory our, our rule of law kind of embodies that community consensus about what she would we should build um one of the most in, i don't know so like when you first started uh, and you weren't on the board like yeah. what kept coming up that you were like oh gosh <laughs> <laughs> anything come to mind well you know one of the interesting things is around st- i mean this is, sounds may sound really trivial but stair design and mm-hmm. i understand why you know there's safety aspects and and we want to have a, a very accommodating uh, point of view in terms of, of things that are safe and easy for people to navigate right mm-hmm. but in a private residence you know being able to use like a ladder to get to a fun space or otherwise explore kind of different spaces uh with different dimensions it's like uh you know you can see different types of staircases in, in more historic architecture in Europe and, and there's many different ways to kind of traverse a path and so it's it's a little annoying to be constrained <laughs> yeah. by that um, yeah and there's a lot of rules that are slightly annoying in terms of um, of you know okay it does kind of limit your, your creative options on the other hand I find that the constraints of finance are probably more constraining than anything okay you know, it's it's easy to dream up something that meets all the criteria it's the funding it um, so I've really made it a mission to understand where the money is coming from in any given project and have a, a deep understanding of how that's driving the decisions that the owner is making. Mm. Um, and if you can understand their goals, then you can work with that to achieve something that's going to be great. And if you don't get that right, you have zero chance of getting anything built. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the most unique design that you've had to do in your career? Most unique design? Yeah. <laughs> in a one-off. Um, well, we once did a an outdoor TV viewing uh, <laughs> pavilion. Okay. <laughs> this this uh, family had a great outdoor deck, and they absolutely loved watching hockey. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, "Well, we want a roof so we can watch hockey outside in the rain." Huh. Like, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your money. Yeah. <laughs> we can do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we'll do it again, but I could understand that for like football. Yeah. But like around here, when hockey season is going on, I don't know if I want to be outside all the time. Yeah, it's like walls <laughs> and heating systems are kind of nice. Yes, <laughs> you know, like or or football. Like if yeah. you're outside because it's like football is an outdoorsy thing. But yeah, like, like or, or baseball or like something yeah. like that. That's interesting. Yeah, um, yeah very neat. <laughs> I've done a lot of unique. I, I will say that that in our um, our practice, because we're we focus more on finding um, clients that we want to work with mm. uh, that are doing good things for the community. You know, we kind of dabble in, uh, it's always unique and it's always interesting. Any given moment, you know, we'll have the water spa, but maybe we'll also have like a museum conservation 
lab or you know maybe we'll have a, a restaurant you know um we're working on a training kitchen for with D the genesis center who helps um, mm -hmm. people find a career in the culinary arts you know so it's that glimpse into everybody's own world that is absolutely fascinating yeah one of the the most impressive i think feats of architecture around here is in i, I mean one i mean there's many we live in a great area for that sort of stuff and when i was a kid i went my mom would bring me and my sister to the pequot museum oh yeah yeah that place is incredible. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I don't know if you know the people that have designed it. I don't know who designed it, but... Uh, yeah, I can't uh, recall. I'm sure we could look it yeah. up. Um, but uh, we actually went down there and um, were looking at a, a solar system with them. It didn't end up panning out, but... Yeah. Um, even many years ago, they were trying to figure out how to reduce their electric bills and power bills um, yeah. because it's a huge operating I, <laughs> Absolutely huge, right? People complain about their houses. I couldn't imagine oh what the gosh. electricity bill is there. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and so my, my whole graduate work was around trying to find ways to do innovations around sustainability uh, in a cost-effective kind of way and yeah. looking at it through the lens of process and practice. So anyway, um, with the museum... We were, um, there were some really innovative solar collectors. I think one was a spiral and other kinds of things that combined different forms. One was a parabolic lens that would collect it. And we're thinking, well, how can we incorporate this in an artistic way into a sculpture? And, <laughs> and um, you know, I think that they have some really great outdoor exhibits and things. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it would have been pretty cool. But, um, you know, I think now, you know, many years later, we're at the point where solar is kind of a no-brainer. Um, so... So that should be uh, better for everybody. To yeah, myself. you definitely drive down the street and you see a lot of houses with solar now. Oh, yeah. The only thing is, is that the technology seems to be advancing so mm -hmm. much. Yeah. So it's like, I feel like the, the solar companies need a way that they can easily be upgraded mm -hmm. for not like a large amount of money. Yeah, yeah. Because solar panels in five years, you can already predict that they're going to be a lot more efficient than yeah. they are right now yeah you know so i think that's the biggest holdback for a lot of people is that you know is the technology yeah. going to be out of date in five years because right. if i live in my house for 30 years you know sure i'd have no problem changing it out every five years but i don't want to drop them the yeah. cash yeah yeah exactly the first cost yeah <laughs> no, you it's, know it's a good point being early adopter i can't even tell you what we paid for our first like big screen tv it was ridiculous yeah. you can probably buy the same tv for about a tenth of the price so yeah there's that risk well there's a lease model which is becoming very popular yes you know i think they just rolled out in rhode island an idea for a program to essentially subsidize the um, leasing of solar panels so the homeowner gets the benefit of the electricity absolutely you know but the installation costs are covered um, by a subsidy so i think that's a kind of a game changer for yeah people. something i wish that i think they would do more often is like so they're they're taking down a lot of forest mm -hmm. in southern rhode island to mm -hmm. put in solar panels um which seems kind of contradictory to the point of mm -hmm. solar panels right um but like then you got like the old bennies in westerly right mm -hmm. like it's just sitting there abandoned mm -hmm. you know so there's a four lease sign there but i doubt any like why not put solar panels on top of the the bennies, you know, and use use like already developed mm -hmm. spots that are, um, like abandoned mm -hmm. for solar panels yeah. instead of taking down forest, you know. Yeah. I'm I'm all for you know efficient energy, uh, greener energy. I think I think a lot of people are, but mm -hmm. I think the way you go about 
doing it mm-hmm. is, I think, the biggest point of conflict. I don't want to get yeah. political here. But. Yeah, yeah, no, I know it's a huge point of contention, right? Yeah. So, you know, I look at solar energy as any other kind of crop, you yeah. know, and, and I think you've got to look at the carbon offsets of what that greenery is providing versus the That's an the interesting, energy. that's a very interesting right. point. Right, and okay. also if you look a long, at a long view of, of history and look at the East Coast, and, you know, this was a very different landscape when in 1492 or yeah. even when Roger Williams got here. And the, the indigenous people had a way of forest management that was very different than yeah. the, like just untamed forest. You know, yeah. they managed it for sure. And then it was all clear cut, yeah. absolutely clear cut. These forests that we see here are not that old in, okay. in life, but geological terms. Yeah. So I, I guess I take the long view meaning, what, in 30 years, if that technology is obsolete and we're doing more offshore wind, you can take those down, the forest will come back. Mm-hmm. So, okay. so, so I, th- I think there is an aesthetic component. You yeah. know, I think people here value the rural lifestyle and the ra- rural imagery and driving yeah. by a solar farm is upsetting on that front. But honestly, I find, you know, the, the kind of... <laughs> horrific damage that climate change is going to bring absolutely a little more yeah. upsetting so I'm, I'm, yeah that's where i stand <laughs> yeah absolutely so so to yeah. your question specifically about bennies is that um if you think about engineering and how how advanced it is you know you know revit right revit mm-hmm. is a very sophisticated tool that we use now and the model can actually tell you the engineering strength of every single piece of metal you can yeah. imagine with cost control once engineering got sophisticated to really predict loads in a mathematical kind of way mm-hmm. we went from oversizing giant mill beams that were just you know tremendously strong um down to engineering things within an nth of of you know their capacity mm. that especially held true in the 50s and 60s and it, and it went too far we started to see roof collapsing from too much snow or mm. a windstorm would so codes have ramped back up and made stronger winds that have more more strength and, and tolerance in either direction but buildings of that area specifically are incredibly weak. They, mm. they wouldn't meet a current code for a new building, let alone the kind of tremendous weight. Because you think about those solar panels, there's yeah. a lot of solar panels. And now think about how snow drifts and builds up against it. So okay. a roof that might have only collected about a foot of snow in a storm now is going to ha- be covered in four-foot drifts as they come against the panels. Mm. So the risk of collapse of that roof is, is, is why most flat roofs on existing buildings are, are a tough sell. However... If you raise that building, and okay, yeah, it's a loss of a building, yeah. but um, that might be a better use because it's yeah. already, you know, you, and turn it to uh, a permeable surface. Um, yeah. Um, I think, honestly, the potential for parking lots to have solar canopies is huge. Yeah, I think they're doing that at URI. Yeah. Aren't they? Yeah. I was seeing that, and I'm like, I'm like trying to figure out, like, they're building a parking garage <laughs> it was yeah. like but then i saw them put the panels there and i was like that makes a lot more sense oh absolutely yeah. and it's just such a benefit too because it helps shield from the rain and the snow and the heat in the mm-hmm. summer so yeah i don't know why every parking lot in the country isn't covered with solar panels that i think is brilliant that yeah. i honestly think i mean what can go wrong i mean hopefully they don't you know fall and hurt people but well, yeah, there's, <laughs> that's some, well, there's some wind uplift but yeah yeah you'd, you'd go to arizona and it's pretty commonplace to go to the grocery store and there's solar sunshades in every grocery store parking lot so hmm. I, I think it's catching on and i think that will be yeah a good that's a really interesting uh idea i think that if there's a way to do it i think that's probably one of if not the most efficient way yeah, to yeah. do it um are you seeing like more customers request like if they're building a building from the ground up to be able to add solar later yeah. down the line? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Either immediately or down the line. And we've, we, I think we're past that tipping point where the economics really make sense. It is yeah. now 
incredibly lucrative to the point where solar is a financial instrument, mm. uh, meaning that there are loans, tax credits, complicated ownership deals to not only take advantage of the um, incentives that are offered by the government, but more importantly, to essentially arbitrage the, the um, value of that solar against rising electricity. So, for example, if you can lock in a contract to sell your power at 15 cents a, a, a kilowatt, and um, the alternative is energy rights, rates rising to 20, 25 cents, you know, mm -hmm. you're going to be the preferred market provider and you can yeah. sell that electricity all day long. So it's it's fascinating to see once Wall Street gets a hold of solar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is literally saving some of my clients hundreds of thousands of dollars, not only in first costs to go mm -hmm. with solar, but essentially this is this is true with our project with Crossroads, the, the big uh, project to provide um, apartments. Um, per, that are permanently supportive. So somebody coming out of shelter like can have a home. Yeah. That they're not abandoned. They're not on their own. They have a stable place to kind of regroup and, mm -hmm. um, and thrive, really. So what's enabling that project is we're able to reduce the operating costs to the point where the mortgage on the building becomes affordable, which is a great win for the, the public investment, right? If you, yeah. your taxpayer dollars are reduced because we can invest in solar energy and help reduce the burden on um, the taxpayers, you know, it's kind of a win-win. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually curious to hear your opinion on this. So I mentioned before we started the podcast, I have a 3D printing company. Sure. <laughs> and affordable housing is a very important task. I recently had on a professor from the University of Texas who is mainly a, a psychology professor mm -hmm. uh he did a, a lot of work down at the border in texas with immigrants mm -hmm. and and things like that and talking to them and helping them people who needed you know psychological help and um he was you know talking about how there needs to be a way to help them get into affordable housings mm -hmm. eventually and um i think 3d printing mm -hmm. the technology not the little ones that you buy in amazon mm -hmm has serious potential mm -hmm. because you can build a 500 square foot small house for like 20 grand mm -hmm. with two people mm -hmm. and a concrete pour essentially. Mm -hmm. Have you mm -hmm. had any experience with, with that? You know, I've, I've looked, I've looked into it, you know, and I, and I think the, um, I think in certain climates that does really well. I did see a pretty extensive documentary on a little village where um, it's also kind of important to understand that the um, that's replicating really just the the framework of it, mm -hmm. right? So if yeah, you think about a, it, south, southwestern house, yeah. you don't need too much more than a mud adobe kind of shelter. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, but our, our expectations for thermal comfort are different than say you know when we were building you know indigenously even in, in um, you know people used to just bundle up <laughs> and mm -hmm. go to bed when it got dark and cold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they used to just put up with the heat or seek the, she the, yeah. the, the shade or like, take a nap during the hottest part of the day. We mm -hmm. have expectations of perfect temperature inside all year long. We have expectations of electric light and refrigerators. We have expectations of soft surfaces like carpet um, and an ability to keep, you know, sofas without them getting moldy you mm -hmm. know so we have layered we, we have expectations on indoor plumbing so if you look at the structure as a piece of a building it's really only about 10 to 20 percent mm. so I, I coming at this from kind of a skeptical point of view i think as labor shortages continue that could definitely be a piece of it um, i think new technologies are always interesting but it's not the silver bullet yeah. because there's so many of those other trades that have to go into it 
And I honestly think that the root of our affordable housing crisis isn't the construction technology. I think there's a lot of really great, yeah. bright people yeah. who are full of inventions on how this is going to be. But uh, honestly, I'm, I'm getting pretty old now, and people have been talking about both modularization and, and 3D printing kind of as the savior. And it's just like, well, that wasn't the problem that we had. We have a lot of... Um, you know, forests that are managed responsibly providing timber. We have a lot of carpenters. We have ability to put up a 150,000 square foot building, which is mm -hmm. what we're proposing in a week. Mm -hmm. We have that technology. That's not the problem that is hardest. What hardest is the people part of the equation. Yeah. And, and that seems to be a reoccurring. <laughs> it's a reoccurring theme, right? Yeah. right? Right? So let's go back to zoning. You know, yeah. it's representing the consensus of the community. If the consensus of the community is they don't want any more buildings, you're not mm -hmm. going to have any more buildings. And we're really paying the price for that um, local control. Um, and I know that there's some proposals to really kind of force the issue and say, look, we've got to provide for each other. We can't, we can't just exist with zero population mm. growth <laughs> so have you converted any of the old like mill buildings oh, yeah. around the state have you personally like done oh, projects yeah. like that oh absolutely yeah yeah we've done quite a few of them and uh you know those are really adaptable buildings that you mm. know they're basically just shoe boxes yeah <laughs> that you can make anything out yeah. of yeah you know so in in terms of we just even haven't even scratched the surface in terms of what we can redevelop you know let alone go to some of those advanced technologies mm -hmm. um i was just listening to stephen Pryor. uh sorry not stephen Pryor. um uh richard um godfrey who is running uh, essentially a new certificate in real estate at Roger Williams uh, University. But uh, he was talking about uh, really making a push to develop some of our commercial corridors that are existing. So think about Route 2, <laughs> you know, in mm -hmm. Cranston or, or any other strip mall kind of oriented center. Tons of parking lots. It's already on a transit network. Um, but these single-story low-density buildings are kind of a, a waste of, of space. Mm. You know, these are not established residential neighborhoods. So why not permit zoning to build small scale um, with shops on, on the ground floor, so no loss of commercial space, and then apartments upstairs. The reality is that most communities in Rhode Island, with the exception of a couple places you can imagine, it's going to be Providence, Pawtucket, mm. <laughs> um, Newport, you know, prohibit anything like that. Mixed use is kind of a dirty word, and it and uh, you're not really allowed to build apartments in most places except those cities. So I, th I think there's got to be some fundamental change in how people think about density mm. um, and allow this, because there's no shortage of people wanting to build. There's no shortage of incentives. Um, now, um, now that people have woken up to the, the, the depth of the problem, um, that but I think there's some real reform around zoning um, and community acceptance that that has to come our way before we're working absolutely out of affordable housing. Um, I have a pretty interesting example. So mm -hmm. I have family up in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. and we were going um, to lunch, and um, it's he's my 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 uh, uncle's father-in-law, so married in family. Mm -hmm. uh, Amazing guy. He's got a very great business. And he took me to lunch at this building that was a multi-use. Mm -hmm. It had businesses on the first floor mm -hmm. and apartments above. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the um, building owner was giving incentives to people who were working or, or living upstairs to work hmm. in the businesses on the first floor huh. and like rent you know, and like yeah. giving them discounts on the rent. So then that would then incentivize more businesses right. to come to that business. That's awesome. <laughs> so, and I thought that was a really great idea, especially like to do it on college campuses. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Reduce commuting costs. And yeah. Time and everything. Yeah, yeah. So like, so, so give a discount on room and board if yeah. they work 
you know, and, and not like where they don't get paid any money. You know, they yeah. get a certain discount off room and board and then they get a paycheck too to, yeah. to work at these Great businesses. <laughs> incentives for, it's incentives for businesses to move there and for students to want to live there. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, Absolutely. I think for anybody, not I, yeah. just students. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I, uh, but but just a, another example would you yeah. know just to have them on college campuses, but yeah. something like that I think would be would be really cool. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. but um, yeah. So let's talk about. I want to get a little bit technical. Okay. <laughs> because uh, I I don't I I really like learning and I don't really remember a whole lot from the architecture size of that. <laughs> class that I took because I, I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. Oh, yeah. I went to URI for two semesters for mechanical engineering and I enjoyed 3D printing a lot, which I guess if there's some type of engineering that it falls under, it's mechanical because mm -hmm. it's a very broad type mm -hmm. of yeah. engineering. So can you explain the different types of roof pitches? <laughs> sure. <laughs> different types of roof pitches, yes. meaning their symbolism or how you so like, actually so like, add them. <laughs> so I, I'm going to sound, my, my inexperience in architecture is really going to come out through here. But like, like there's like, the, there's when there's 12 involved and yeah, like, okay, you know what right, I mean? Right, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, okay. Um, you know, this might be helpful for the people watching online, yeah. you know, so you think about, um, uh, uh, the horizontal distance, your x-axis, is yeah. being the, the 12. Yeah. And then if you say, okay, I have a roof that's 6 over 12, that means you're going to go up 6 for every 12 inches. Okay. So, And then once you get that 12 and then 6, he's like, aha, I'm just going up that slope. I'm just going to continue it. Okay. And, it, and it's easy for carpenters to calculate that because they make special carpenter squares that have those kind of built in. Well, it's just slope. Like right, if it's you look just at, a slope. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on a graph. Okay. Yeah, and you can okay. easily measure it out. If you've got 30 feet from your, your edge of your roof to the center, it's like, okay, and I want it to be 6 to 12. It looks like I'm going 15 feet up. It's math you can do in your head. Yeah. Just about anybody can do yeah. in your head. Um, so, so, and it's a really just convenient way to, to talk about that. And it's a convention that's just yeah. stuck. So I, I actually kind of love the question because, um, you know, when we talk about, um, residential architecture and even commercial architecture, there's, there's cultural attachments to different roof pitches. Mm -hmm. You know, you see a form and you're like, ah, that's a, so, you know, if you think about a super steep roof that's over 12 to 12, let's call it 16 to 12, like an A-frame or something, mm. that starts to be kind of very Swiss village, you know, yeah, just, yeah. Or, or a ski hut, you know, deep snow where you don't want any snow accumulating on it. So as soon as you do that super steep roof, it's just like, that looks kind of Swiss. Yeah. <laughs> like, is this the right place to put a little Swiss village? Like, mm. I don't know. It's, I, I find it that you really should be matching up the appropriateness if you're going to use that kind of symbolism. So then you go down the scale on 12, 12, 12, 12 is a very nice, very popular, especially around here. A lot of the houses that we see from the 18th, 19th, 20th century even, very comfortable. It's steep enough to, to have an effect on, on rain and snow. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of balanced. You start getting to 612 and you're starting to get, okay, well, maybe that's a temple form. You think about Greek temples, maybe appropriate a bigger scale like a bank building or something. But then you start getting lower like a 412 and it starts to just get kind of ugly, you mm. know, like army barrack or, you know, warehouse kind of thing. So, so by picking that, um, that slope of a roof, you're not only responding to weather and um, what material you're going to clad it with, um, you're responding to these cultural signifiers. Um, it's just a loaded, loaded thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then flat roof, another whole ball of wax. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you know what's funny is you mentioned like the there's a lot of older houses around here. Mm -hmm. You know, like yeah. 1800s. Some even in the late 1700s. Yeah. Though, especially in Newport. Oh yeah. 
what is have you ever had to sort of update one of those older houses oh yeah okay so what's the biggest challenge when when converting those houses you know i think the biggest challenge which if done well works well is knowing what you're looking at it and deciding what's important to keep and what you can get rid of Mm -hmm. you know so i I mentioned the stonewall house that we just finished up at brown university um that house was originally built it was actually built over something like eight years i'm going to get the dates wrong here but something like 1816 to 1824 you think about and it was built by a pair of brothers who owned a stone cutting company the um um and i'll think of their name in a second <laughs> but these um these these brothers basically you think about what providence was like at the beginning of the 19th century Mm -hmm. it was the woods they were cutting down trees in the forest dragging them over milling them on site putting them up with with tools that were pretty limited uh whatever they could forge or or build themselves that's why it took eight years yeah (laughs) if you're doing the project yourself so um knowing that that was its history when we looked at the house something was not right you know there's some weird details like this almost french ironwork out front and then you go inside, and it's like, you know what? That mantle looks like the mantle in my house from 1890. And that over there <laughs> looks like, you know, um, you know, industrial mills, you know, frame. it's old, but it's like maybe 1920. And so sure enough, um, you know, the house was had a massive renovation in um, the early 20th century, so around 1915 to 1920. And the, the person who did that had very Victorian taste. So they gutted the place. Mm-hmm. And what's uh, even more important, once we uncovered the walls, uh, we discovered that they ch- they cut into the structure. So the old house, it was basically a tree trunk in each post and, um, the, and a, a pin and tenon joint. The Victorian era renovation essentially just cut those structural posts <laughs> and um, basically weakened the whole frame. So our structure engineer was, was a bit horrified. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I, I don't think that if we had been doing that renovation, we would have done something like that, sacrificed the structure and cut away part of that character. At the same time, the Victorian interiors was kind of nothing special. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it wasn't really a key part of the story of the house. It was somebody's kind of decorating project. And so we we made the choice because we could that and the university agreed with us that we would keep as much as we could but um, we weren't going to be too precious about it but the parts of the house that were very authentic to that original building um, and really told the story um, of these stone cutters who were um, you know crucial to Brown's campus they were the, the stone cutters for um, the, the the state capitol building um, was was kind of what we really wanted to to get back to so, mm. yeah um yeah so I guess this is a pretty generic question but what do you think the biggest misconception about architects in your industry is? Yeah, you know what drives me absolutely crazy? <laughs> and this comes from people who really ought to know better. Um, and, and I think it comes from maybe more lawyers and, and other people around um, and, and financial experts is they think that the architects like take somebody else's ideas and come in and make it look pretty. Mm. It's just like got to be kidding me yeah <laughs> you know as you've heard me to kind of describe all the kind of thinking and strategizing and understanding Absolutely. you know what community goals are what the building needs to be you know i, I like to think we, we do architecture for the blind <laughs> mm-hmm. that it's still got to be a great building if you even if you can't see it aesthetics and beauty comes from a deep understanding and meshing of an understanding of those goals and constraints and it, if it's beautiful it's because it deploys that in a um in a way that's more than the sum of its parts you know so making it look pretty makes it sound incredibly trivial um and it's not at all what the goal is um you know beauty beauty i think is a concept in and of itself that's different from 
pretty mm. <laughs> and i think both most people understand it yeah yeah so it's it's when people think of design as something shallow or surface or something that gets applied after all the important decisions are made that's kind of what drives me mm-hmm. <laughs> okay um and you had mentioned that you really come from an art background and so married and with the technology we're married the with science. the tech yeah. but i mean but your real passion i mean like you said was art correct would that be i think it's a balance okay. i absolutely think it's a balance okay. i'm probably on the more technical side of a lot of things even though i, I do consider myself an artist i paint okay. I, I draw um, I, I really see that that balance is the key to it so how do you incorporate your your love for art mm-hmm. and, and and the balance with your your sort of technical side mm-hmm. too like how do you incorporate that into your designs so i think it's it's all it's different sides of the same coin and where it comes together is this um, notion of human-centered design mm-hmm. that um, in the last couple of years we've been increasingly aware of of that as kind of centering our, our discussion and it's something I've always been um, fascinated by and I guess what I, I will give you an example of that that I've used a couple of times um, when um, you think about um, how we perceive different things and understanding of how the brain works and how um, people respond to their environment is pretty key. There is a part of the brain that recognizes faces, chairs, and buildings. It's like, okay, <laughs> that seems like a weird group mm. of things to put together. But when you think about that, that means that there's a certain digestibility of scale and features that are common, you know, and we have an evolutionary response that suggests that it's to our benefit to recognize something of, of a certain grouping with a certain scale. And it tells us that there's something about buildings that even though humans were around for a lot longer than we had buildings, there's something about recognition of an animal or a cave or, or some other element of the environment that's triggering something very deep-rooted in us. So by using science to understand, for example, what those cognitive perceptions are, you can then exploit it in an artistic way. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we have a building that we're designing that uses a gradient of bricks. And the idea is that it's using our optical um, kind of perception. You obviously see individual pixels, say, on a computer, right? Everybody gets the point of white, black, white, black, and then the more black you have, the darker it looks. We're using a brick pattern that you blends white and uh, brick patterns to take advantage of our human eye's ability to blend them. So it looks like a gradient. You know, not every animal out there sees in the same way. We, but our minds are, are geared towards saying, okay, that gradient is going to suggest that's the same plane, and then we have a sharp edge that suggests depth. And mm-hmm. so it's an optical illusion, but once you understand how that brain works, you can then intentionally set up things with gradients, breaks, and planes to create a visual effect that's actually pretty stunning. And it just seems like magic, but it's like, no, it comes from science, but it's an artistic event. So, so that's, I guess, what I mean by a balance. It's, it's, you have yeah. to understand one to do the other. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so is there any type of project that you haven't done yet that you would like to eventually do in your career? Oh, my goodness. There's so many. I don't know why I'm thinking of roller coasters, but that sounds like a really <laughs> fun thing. Well, maybe if Rocky Point comes back to Rhode yeah, Island. right. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've had the privilege to work on so many different things, um, hotels and restaurants, but residences, um, apartment buildings, offices, labs. Um, honestly, I have a fascination with hotels and yeah. <laughs> just the variety of environments yeah. and the notion of, of kind of escape yet comfort and home and the degree to which that um, kind of sensory and experience is critical to, to making the place. Mm. So. 
um yeah i mean we've done hotels but i'd love to do more that seems like a great thing have you done one <laughs> from the ground up like like no no, no okay. not from the ground up uh maybe in the future we haven't um we haven't pursued <laughs> that we've been frankly quite busy yeah <laughs> so but um yeah it's always it's always uh, interesting thing. what was the most challenging part about renovating the the dean hotel like you were saying earlier like what was a like was that a very it was an old hotel that you had to renovate <laughs> well, it's kind of infamous yeah um so it was built as a um a basically as supportive housing by the um the, the Catholic Church. Um, I'm sorry, it was the Episcopalian Church. It was Reverend, Reverend Theodore Decker raised okay. funds, and it was a haven for people who were transients. You know, mm-hmm. which is the old-fashioned word for people experiencing homelessness or or moving through town. Um, also, people who had issues with drugs, with drinking. And his model was that um, you he would provide room and board, but then you would work in the soup kitchen. You would work cleaning up the place. So you would work for your your, your um, stay, and then he would deliver sermons. And so, kind of this. Christian education was a part of it. So mm-hmm. that lasted until the Reverend died and then it immediately became kind of a CD flop house. Um, you know, dancing, you know, dime dances. Um, it became a, a punk rock bar for a while and then unfortunately became kind of a strip club um, uh-huh. with rooms for rent by the hour. Oh. Um, so very, very convenient, <laughs> but, um, it, it, the building had really decayed to the point where, and, and so many bad renovations that it was just, uh, you know, a, a, a terrible building. And a lot of people looked at it and just passed because it was, it was kind of tough. The way it was built was actually some really innovative construction techniques in, you know, 1912, I think it was finished. It used terracotta block as fireproofing walls, which are great at stopping fires. It was very safe. It was built with, with shafts all over the place for ventilation to help the spread of infectious diseases if that mm. sounds familiar um, but those kind of features made it actually really difficult to renovate you know think about trying to drill a hole to put a new wire through a, a terracotta block it's going to shatter yeah and so it's the like technical challenges of doing a renovation affordably it's not like taking down a wood framed wall you pretty much take a hammer and you're, you're done <laughs> but, yeah um, any kind of changes like that and installing new modern systems were a, a really big part of it but we did a very green systems you know heat pumps um, for all the rooms and um, very efficient windows and, and things like that. So um, I'm just bringing back <laughs> all sorts of trauma. Yeah. Thinking you know what? You know what? It was. <laughs> something else that's interesting is I feel like a lot of people look at, like you said, architecture on the surface, right? Mm-hmm. You just design the building, but you mentioned the heat bumps, and that made me just think like you have to go in there and design all the systems, the layouts mm-hmm. for the electricity the HVAC, mm-hmm. everything. Well, yeah, and we do have a team of engineers and experts. It's a big team. I, w- I would say for, um, they say that for every million dollars of construction, and this number may be out of date, there's 37 jobs. And so those jobs are obviously contractors, mm-hmm. but it's also a host of, of people. We have about 50 engineers, architects, designers of every stripe um, on, a, on a given project. So the architect is usually at the center of that team. We like to have contractors on board early as well for input with pricing and constructability. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we have to be thinking about that. Those decisions are made early. Um, I'm full of pithy sayings, but another thing that you know, it seems to, to uh, prove out is that 80% of the costs of something are in the first 20% of a project life. And it's those early stage decisions that says, look, what kind of heating system are we going to do? What kind of structural system? You know, how, how big, how wide, what, <laughs> what's the proportion of wall to, to the floor that really shape a lot of the later constraints that happen. So, yeah. What do you think is the biggest change in the architecture industry from when you first started to now? 
Um, I think it's it's a good one. I think that, that the awareness of energy efficiency yeah. and building science is commonplace now. Okay. It's like no longer a big deal. It's like, look, we have an efficient, you know, wall. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I think there's still improvements to be made. Um, I, I think that, um, yeah, that's all really a good, good measure. Um, I think there's... Um, I think perhaps a reaction to modernism that, you know, has been bad, that has sort of given modernism a bad name. Um, and that's, that's changed a lot. I think people are a lot less receptive in, in a lot of places to mm-hmm. more contemporary design, um, you know, with the exclusion of maybe, you know, New York, Tokyo, <laughs> London. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's unfortunate because the, the modern architecture is really recent phenomena. And the thing about buildings that are older is if it's an unloved building, it tends to get t- torn down or renovated. So all the bad stuff, most of the bad stuff anyway, is kind of gone. And mm-hmm. what we're seeing from you know the year 1850 is pretty much the best that was there because people loved it and they mm-hmm. saved it and they put money and time and effort into keeping it. So we have this romantic vision of, of um, older architecture, but really we're still sorting through the process of what from the mid-century and, and later we really, really want to keep and what was successful at kind of responding to human needs what what is there are plenty of of buildings i could show you that are very modern very contemporary that still provide a richness of experience mm-hmm. great lighting wonderful warmth and pattern um great environments to meet people and um, um and work from so you know i think th- that's that's another challenge i think is getting people to be open-minded about yeah. what architecture really means beyond that surface level symbolism. Yeah. Something I found insanely interesting is, so I recently got my real estate license and mm-hmm. I want to say like the second weekend I, after I got my license, I went to a bunch of open houses in Newport yeah. <laughs> and just because I wanted to go meet realtors and go honestly see some of the houses for sale. So I, I sent in a minimum for like a million dollars. I yeah, want, I want, yeah. and I wanted to be able to go in and see these houses. Oh, yeah. And one of the houses that came up is one Oh four mill street. Uh, meant that I met the realtor. I think his name is Giovanni. Super nice guy. Yeah. And seemed like a really good realtor. Um, the house was listed for like $4 million, but it was this, really old like we're talking late 1700s it's Whoa. the oldest brick house in newport wow and uh it and you walked into that house so there was an addition that you walk in at first but you take a left mm-hmm. and you just feel like a presence like yeah. of of the history mm-hmm. of of how many people have been in that house probably yeah, yeah. and you go up the stairs and it's cr- creaking sure, and it's creaking dented where steps have gone on yeah, it, yeah and 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 then you go up and there's like when you walk in a in a modern house and like the second story mm-hmm. you can't like you can't f- like un- like feel that there's a story underneath you when mm-hmm. you're in those houses. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's creaking in the floor, yeah. and you can sometimes like see between the floorboards yeah, yeah. <laughs> in some places yeah. where they haven't put in insulation or anything like sure. that. Um, but like it's just crazy, like like when you feel a presence like that, like yeah. the is- historic well, it presence you of, of, of gravity, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, you have new appreciation of structure, you know, and that's one of those sensory and those cognitive things that I think is really interesting. Uh, one of my favorite books, most influential, I think is, um, welcome to your world by uh, Sarah Goldhagen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually brought her up to Providence, uh, in, uh, before the pandemic to give a lecture standing crowd only really lays out a, a very compelling and concise set of data on how to tie that research around human 
human cognition. And one of her points was about your, your bodily, your sense of body, right? You know, if you think about being a kid on the swing sets, that's actually a really valuable learning experience to understand how, where you are in relation to space and how you relate to objects, what gravity means. And so when you're talking about being on that second floor, that's a little woo dumpy, you know, it stimulates that sense of, of our, our, our physical being that's, yeah. you know, so different from the digital world. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, and that's a place where, you know, people talk about virtual reality and, and augmented reality. You know, I've heard of restaurants that all they do is show projections on the wall in a black box. But, you know, I, there's no real substitute unless you're at a Disney ride for that mm. kind of physicality of the architecture. Yeah. So, and that, that bounce in the floor is pretty much building codes. I mean, yeah. It's not <laughs> terribly safe. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then like the, like the fireplaces yeah. on the second floor, yeah. like you don't see that no. anymore. No, you ever. really don't. <laughs> and it it's just super, like you walk in there and you can see like the fireplace, like how black the bricks are yeah. from all the different fires. And like, yeah. I don't know, like it was just fascinating to walk in there and you're like, and like how weird the layout is because all the rooms are really small, yeah. but you're in this massive house. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, no, and I mean, and it's it's great because it, it begs all these questions of well, how did they live? Why are the rooms small? Why is there a fireplace? Oh, because it's really cold. Yeah. And you weren't going to spend all your wood heating up some giant space if you didn't yeah. have to. Like yep. heat one space and bundle up, sit by the fire. <laughs> Whatever yeah. That is, you know. So I, I, again, it comes back to that expectations of comfort and and equality, like. We may complain about, you know, some uh, how sterile some of these systems are, but you know, you put somebody in the woods for a weekend without a working toilet, and yeah. <laughs> pretty pretty full of complaints. Yeah. Well, uh, I I've had an absolutely amazing conversation with yeah, you. Thank thanks. you very much. It's been a blast. Absolutely. I can talk uh, <laughs> and I end every podcast with this one question. Okay. Uh, and it and it could this this question is if you could leave one piece of advice for the listener, it could be about business architecture, life, anything you want it to be, what sort of advice would you leave? Um, I think there's a lot of talk. I will give the general kind of life advice because there's a lot of young people really doing some soul searching right Mm -hmm. now or kind of trying to figure their way. There's a lot of adults, you know, who are really reevaluating their lives, their careers. You know, the pandemic has been this big snow globe where Mm -hmm. it just... What can we count on and where do we want to be? Um, The best advice I ever got in turn, I want to credit my friend Michelle Wilcox, who's actually president of Crossroads, said to me, you know, forget about pursuing your passions. I mean, that's great. That'll keep you interested. But that's that, that's a little bit selfish. And if everybody followed their passions, like the entire world would just be musicians. Like mm-hmm. seriously, yeah. everybody would just. Like, Who doesn't like a good song? <laughs> exactly. Everybody <laughs> wants to go play drums in a rock yeah. band. It's like or most people. Um, you know, so but so following your passions isn't really going to lead to a sense of deep fulfillment. You know, you may find that that's a pretty short, short path. Um, instead follow meaning you know find meaning in something Mm -hmm. because as she explained it you know does she love like going to clean up the stoop where somebody may have vomited the night before (laughs) no nobody does right yeah but you know that that's keeping the city clean you Mm -hmm. know that that you're taking care of somebody who needs your help right then if you can find meaning in that and helping others for example or you may find meaning in art and kind of sharing your vision sharing your emotional experience of a place uh or maybe you're working on a a a spaceship right you're Mm -hmm. an engineer and you're developing a new kind of part that's going to help keep that engine from exploding and and we can test the the limits of human knowledge you know if you can find meaning in a job that also is something that you want to do and then people will pay you for like Mm -hmm. that's that's the the golden (laughs) life right there so absolutely well that's great advice thank you very much for sharing that um and yeah like i said been a blast talking to you thank you very much for taking time out of your day to come on the podcast yeah super fun thanks absolutely (laughs) and uh 
yeah thank you all for listening to the knowledge is power podcast and if you want to get uh these episodes weeks in advance you can subscribe to knowledge is power on patreon uh this episode i think will be posted the first week of february but it'll be available on patreon probably this weekend um so for all of you listening go subscribe on patreon and support the podcast also don't forget to follow knowledge is power on instagram so thank you all for listening and i will catch you in the next one